This podcast is brought to you by UK Coaching, here for the coach. Visit ukcoaching.org to grow your coaching skills and be part of the community. Good afternoon, everybody. Um, Welcome to Curious Coaches Club. And my name is Nick Levitt. I'm head of coaching at UK Coaching here. And today, joined by a, a, a couple of uh, superstars from the swimming world, but I will let them kind of share a little bit more about who they are in a second. Just to make sure that everybody's on the same page with what the session is all about. So we've got 200 odd people on the on the call today, which is awesome. Please make sure that your microphone is on mute and your video is off mainly because it just makes things a little bit easier. Um, last week, we had somebody whose microphone was on and all you heard was a mum in the background screaming, Poppy, in a very high-pitched voice, which means that I learned that their homeschooling was probably going as well as my homeschooling was going. So please just make sure your microphone is uh, on silent and your video's off. Um, that's probably my disclaimer at this point as well. Um, we will probably see a uh, five-year-old appear at some stage um, through that door, despite the fact that I've um, uh, I've tried to keep him away and on task on Minecraft, such as my parenting skills. Um, and otherwise, he'll be coming you in, telling you stories about when his goggles snapped, when he was doing different things and trying to get involved in the conversation. So we're, we're trying to avoid that as best we can. That's the plan for today's session. We're going to talk for the first half about how we go about developing greatness all the way through from when you first kind of work with people in a talent development environment all the way through to right you're at the top of the world how do you make sure nobody ever catches you and we've got mel that can start to give us a really fascinating insight into that second half of that we'll start to pick up on a little bit more about how we're going to work with individuals to develop a higher purpose in them but along the way, you'll see the chat box on the right-hand side. So feel free to throw in some thoughts, questions, etc. as we go along. What we will do is we'll try and pick up some of those as we go through the question, uh, through the conversation and weave them in and, and throw them at Mel and Alan as we go through the process as well. Anything that we don't pick up in there, we'll try and pick up through the Connected Coaches thread as well. So there's lots of opportunity to engage in there. It'd be great for Mel and Alan, just from the start, just to give us a bit of a flavour of who we've got in the room. So just throw up uh, what sport you coach and maybe the age group of, of who you work with as well, just to kind of give us a bit of a flavour. And then where possible, we'll try and make sure that we tailor some of the conversations around them, because conscious that Mel and Alan's background is both predominantly in one sport. But I can imagine we're going to have real random mixture of people in there. Uh, it's going to fly through pretty quick. So, pretty much Alan and Mel, um, it's everything for everyone. So, if you <laughs> that, that's, uh, that's pretty much uh, what it's going to be about. <laughs> yeah. So, um, what I'd like to do just to start with really is um, people will probably know you guys as uh, a coach, but without necessarily understanding the full range of experiences that you might have had. So let's start with Melvin. So tell us a little bit about your coaching journey and, and maybe some of those key experiences that have shaped you along the way. Yeah, so for me, my um, coaching journey started when I was at school, really, because I always wanted to be a PE teacher when I was young. So what I tried to do was I tried to submerse myself in as many different coaching opportunities as possible. Um, and so when I was in year 11, I was actually coaching sixth form boys football lessons. Um, I was out on the hockey field coaching the hockey teams. I was, um, I guess, being the wingman of the PE teachers to try and work out and learn my craft. You know, that trying to plan the perfect lesson, The how do you create and the perfect content for each sport, and then how do you adapt that? So my first really for coaching came in from like I wanted to be a PE teacher. 
And then when I was a swimmer, I used to kind of do these workshops where you would get sent to the middle of nowhere into a swimming club and they would say, right, there's 80 children, there's three lanes, can you occupy them for four hours, off you go. So then I kind of developed that, right, I need to have a bit of a, uh, a bit of something here that's going to be able to entertain them and cope with that amount of people. So I started to build up a bit of a, a coaching thirst. And then I went, um, then I basically, when I was on my last year of swimming, I, I needed a job. So I, I thought I, I had my dissertation left to write and I was keen to try out swimming coaching alongside finishing my degree. I applied for a few jobs, um, some I didn't even get an interview for. And then I applied for the head coach role at City of Derby, which was probably quite a big job to get for your first job out of um, the time from being an athlete. And um, I went to the interview and I was determined I was going to get the job. Uh, and they took a bit of a risk on me and, and it turned out to be a positive risk for everybody all round. So I guess to summarise, ultimately wanted to be a PE teacher, had a knowledge of swimming. Um, and then I went into coaching. But I guess my athlete journey, a lot of the things I experienced as an athlete, I was desperate to kind of impart that knowledge um, on in terms of in the sport. So that, that was sort of it. Um, that was kind of my from the grassroots into into the city of how I found myself into coaching. Cool. Alan, what's uh, what's been your route to where you've got to the short version, maybe? Very, very similar to Mel, actually. I, I used to be, uh, I, I wasn't very good at school, educationally. Um, I did okay, but but no great shakes. But I wanted to be a, a sports teacher as well, a PE teacher. And I used to assist at school. I used to assist with the, 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 the PE teachers. And we had a fabulous school that we went to. It was just an all-boys school in one town. Um, and we got on really, really well with the PE teachers. And they actually put me off doing it. Um, they didn't. They said, don't get into teaching, go into coaching. Um, as my athletic career progressed, I didn't, I, I was a weird swimmer. I didn't start swimming properly till I was 20. For all those swimming, swimming coaches out there, I never did more than an hour a week until I was 20 years old. But from the moment I started swimming at, at a decent level over in America, I started helping and talking with the coaches. When I came back to Sheffield, I took the junior teams, um, and then did a lot of one-to-ones with the guys um, at Sheffield. And kind of the literally the week I, I quit the Olympics and quit swimming, I got a job up in East Lothian. How I got the job, I do not know, because I did the worst interview of all time. Um, and I think just because I got a decent tan for being in Atlanta and, and five rings, that I got the job, really. And I kind of learned an awful lot very, very quickly, but worked at a very local level and we built up this fantastic team in East Lothian which one of the proudest points I've got is that we started it in 1996 and it's still going to this day so that system and process is still in place and then I progressed to City of Edinburgh where I work with uh, for all you swimming people out there the likes of Jamie Salter and Ian Edmund and Gregor Tate and Kirsty Balfour and Chris Gilchrist with Tim Jones as well um, and lo loads and loads in a very very short space of time and I guess I kind of moved out of day-to-day -day coaching then into a bit more sporadic coaching but working on the coach development side of stuff so yes I, I still consider myself a coach of coaches rather than a coach of, of athletes so and I've been doing that for the last 14, 14 or so years so yeah that's kind of my coaching so I still consider myself a coach I'm just not a swimming coach. I'm not a football coach. I'm not a cricket coach. I just coach people to be better now. And both of you have kind of made reference to uh, your uh, your athlete career as a swimmer, um, and both of you clearly the very the very top of that. What what is it that you've taken from that that you that you now apply in your actual coaching though? Um, I think for me. Um, an athlete, I probably experienced quite a lot. So I, I, I went through the the night before the relay team was um, selected. I was told I wasn't swimming. Um, Commonwealth Games in 1998, there was 40 places. I'd qualified as the 41st place. 
Um, I was ranked the fastest in the world in 2004, going into the Olympics and ended up crashing and burning. Um, I was in the relay that came ninth that potentially could have got a medal in Beijing. Um, I was a good junior, then got lost in the transition. And then I um, I went from being quite a good junior to nothing. Um, you know, I went through a university program, a club program. Um, I was bullied. I was uh, challenged. I was disagreed with for being different. And um, so I felt like I'd been through a lot um, as an athlete. And also I'd been to the main arenas. I'd been to the Olympics of Commonwealth Games. And so a lot of the non-technical aspects of coaching from a performance coaching point of view, I'd learned. And so for me, I felt like that's one of the reasons, the big reasons that I wanted to be in coaching. And I think that one of the big things that I've, I'd, if I could summarise it, four things that have helped me from what I learned as an athlete, as a coach, is one, it's not about you. And if you think it's about you, then you're in the wrong job. It's a selfless act. The second thing is the power of um, pitch. So what I mean by that is when to apply pressure and when to relieve pressure, when to invite challenge, when to offer support. The third thing I learned was around emotional intelligence. Alan mentioned it earlier, but we're we're not in a we're in a sport game from the technical side but it's all about people and the big thing i learned and this was from being an athlete is that a coach has got two ears and one mouth so we should be listening more than we should be talking and as an athlete i often felt unheard and i think that was one of the most important things for me as a coach is my athletes always felt heard they felt valued they felt supported and they felt challenged in a positive way how do those four chime with you, Alan? Um, I think Mel and I have been separated somewhere along the line. Um, I, I too, I, I missed, I, as I say, I, I had a very strange swimming career. I, I always swam from the age of nine or 10 and was okay, sort of like top three at counties, top 10, top 15 at regionals, but never ever made a national age groups. Um, suddenly did one good time at 18, 19 at college. Um, at university and got whisked off to the States um, in 1990. So 18 months later, I did the Olympic trials and I came fifth and missed out on an Olympic place by five one hundredths of a second. And I went back to the States and talked with my coach, uh, a, a British coach, actually, Martin Smith, who was a 1976 and 1980 Olympian and Olympic medalist for Great Britain. And we controlled time I come across the concept, it may sound really, really backwards now, but in 1992, controlling the controllables was a, was a brand new thing. So a lot of um, what I put in place for the next four years to make sure I never felt like I've just missed out on the Olympics again was, was controlling the controllables. But what I reflected back off being an athlete is the more people I met, the more people I talked to, the more people I listened to, the better I got as an athlete. Um, and, and I'm not sure about the amount of coaches that are listening today or, or, or Mel herself, but if I could go back 25 years now, I'd be a better athlete with the knowledge I have today of, of being a coach. And the things I, I picked up along the way were just, just brilliant. But the biggest thing was, was the journey. And it's something that I brought into my coaching. We can win Olympic medals. We can go to Olympics. We can get GB track suits. We can get lovely kit and all that sort of stuff. The people you meet along the way. It's about the shared experiences. Um, I still meet up with some of uh, my swimming buddies on a, on a yearly basis. Um, and, and we've still got that, that stuff. And, and I think it was in the Living With Lions DVD of the South African tour of when they said, you know, you'll meet each other in 30 years time walking down the street and there'll just be a glint in your eye saying, we did that journey with you and we were there with you and we can empathise with you. And that's kind of what I, what I try and bring in my coaching. Yes, the observation, the listening, but it's about enjoying that journey. Otherwise, there's no point in doing it and, and creating a better person at the end of it, just making sure people are, in it for the right reasons that, that they started swimming or cricket or because they love the sport and just yeah, because absolutely, Olympics, absolutely you still need to yeah. love the sport and as a coach 
you still need to love the sport. So yeah. that's Brilliant. probably the biggest takeaway for me. So Mel, take us back then. So so City of Derby, you're now there and got the big job leading a talent development program with you know your experiences as a as an Olympian behind you. How did you go about trying to shape that environment? You know, I'm really interested in, in kind of getting into a bit of the detail about what you did and, and why you chose to try and set it up in that kind of way. Well, I'll paint a picture for you. So the City of Derby was um, a feeder club to a performance programme. Um, okay. So when I went in, it was, you know, you were only allowed to take athletes to a certain level. Um and that really didn't sit well with my values because I'd come from being an athlete and I'd been to all these other little clubs around the country and I just had this real feeling of if we gave these little clubs a little bit more, then we would be so much more successful as a nation because everybody would have more opportunities. So I had this real value of I think that we should be giving these clubs more. And then I had this competitiveness in me that was basically – Somebody told me that you can't produce Olympic Olympians in this sort of program. Well, that was like a red rag to a bull. So, I mean, there was a naivety in me. There was a selfishness in me. There was a, I won't be proven wrong, but my values are, my mum taught me that with energy and enthusiasm, you can do anything you want. And so I wasn't going to kind of let politics or structure get in the way of what was now my program flourishing. Um, so I think for me, if I can set the scene, the city of Derby, the facilities were poor. There was a four-lane, 30-metre pool with high sides. There was plastic at the bottom. The tank hadn't been emptied for 40 years. Uh, there wasn't a lot of facilities. And I guess what I'm trying to get across is your environment encompasses way more than your facility. Everything that we built, the reason why we at City of Derby were able to make the impossible possible was because the way we worked with people and the way we saw um, belief. And I sort of obviously had a bit of a prep with your questions that you sent earlier, but I guess if I look at City of Derby and why were we able to produce an Olympic champion, a Paralympic bronze medalist, three kids to uh, programmes in America and one European junior qualifier in a very, very small programme, it was, well, if I look at the why, it was because we believed and I guess I sold this vision that anything's possible. And that was the belief and that was the vision from the start. And then I role modeled the behaviors of that. How we did it, we introduced competition, we introduced visibility of success. So how do we get there? We had energy, we had fun, we sold it, we made it attractive, we made it the best place that you wanted to be, the most fun place you wanted to be. We had Christmas challenges, Santa hats, Buzz Lightyear, the whole lot for that, that group of kids. So it wasn't a case of going out and getting athletes. People just heard about what you were doing. They were like, that sounds like the best thing ever. We want to go there. Um, and for me, how we did it was we had world-class content in what we were delivering in terms of programmes, and we brought the goal into the training environment regularly. And then I guess what we did off that was, like I say, we were able to produce an Olympic champion, Paralympic bronze medalist. We went from a club that was 12 regional qualifiers to 25 regional qualifiers, uh, sorry, to 50 regional qualifiers, to 20 national qualifiers, to internationals and people coming in. So I guess the, the why we did it was because we believed anything was possible, how we did it, introduce competition, make sure people see belief, energy, fun, and always concentrate on your house. And then the, what we did was, well, we, we didn't, we, we did it basically. We did it. So. so I'm intrigued about that, that role model piece that you said that, you know, had to kind of model some of that. What, what did that look like for you as a coach? What would people have seen if they'd have gone, right, Mel is modelling the behaviours that, that she wants to see. That what, what would we have seen if we'd have seen you there that, that some of the coaches might listening to this might be able to go, oh, yeah, I can take some stuff away from that? Well, if I delivered 20 sessions, I did 20 performances. So to me, I'm just like, every time you walk in the building, who you are and who you present is what they are and what they take home. So if I go in with energy and enthusiasm and positivity and seeing a positive in every challenge – 
not everybody will come with you, but people will start to think maybe it is possible. And people take longer to change behaviours. But if you're consistent with the way you role model your behaviours, then people will potentially start to shape the way they behave in the same way. And so if, if they said to me, you can't take kids on a training camp, I would say, I will go and raise money and sort it out and we will do it. So anytime I was greeted with, we won't, I, I would problem solve and find a way around it. Um, but that role modeling was, it's a positive body language all the time. And it's a, um, you know, it's, yeah, you are, they are what you, you, they are what you bring. One of the questions that's that's come up in the, the chat box, I'm really interested in both of your views on from Mustafa. So uh, if, if you don't know Mustafa, for anybody else that's kind of listening now, um, some of his work around resilience is probably the, he's one of the leading thinkers in there. So, you know, you talked about kind of that, that high challenge, high support kind of environment that you're looking to create there. When do you know this? When do you kind of, or is it intuition that, you know, you recognize that this is the time to you know to challenge and push and, and nudge them along and when do you know when to support you know how do you find the balance between those two i think for me i have a I, you know how certain coaches have certain talents my talent is probably that intuition and that read on people but for people who don't have that intuition the way to find out more about a situation is to ask an effective question so if you want to know when the right time to challenge is you have to information gather on your audience after information gather on your athletes after information gather on your young children that you're working with if they've got stuff at school or they're having problems with their friends you know body language is one way to read but effective questioning is another way to read them and so i think that's really important and you have to remember as a coach what context are you operating in so for me as a community coach in city of derby with performance in mind my job was to get the majority of those kids to 18, enjoying the journey and making sure that challenge them enough to be, um, you know, better through an experience. And but also that they were still enjoying what they were doing for the next 10 years after they got to 18. You know, my job as a performance coach, it embodies some of those those traits still. But my job is also to invite maybe a higher level of challenge. Um, so it's a, it's a real it's a, it's a real balancing act, but you've got to, people don't grow unless you put a competitive hurdle in front of them to get over. The art of coaching is deciding and understanding who can get over that hurdle, when, where, and how. Because everyone. I mean, the, the, I mean you make it sound so easy. Well, <laughs> not easy, but again, it's, if you just present to the crowd, you'll get one bit of feedback, which is a round of applause at the end. If you interact with the crowd, you'll get more feel and more feedback from where they're at and as to when is the right time to get them over that competitive hurdle. And often we're in love with our own voice. Let's talk my ideas. Let me say it louder. And actually, you don't take people with you unless they understand the why, the what and the how. And if you understand their why, what and how, then you start learning how to drive the drive them a little bit more and get them over those competitive hurdles that are imperative for us to grow, for us to progress and us to achieve. And life now, every parent wants to take that competitive hurdle out the way and run them to the finish line. Every situation in life wants to make it more comfortable. And you come in as the alien going, uh, no, I want you to get over these 10 hurdles, please. So it's a much more creative way of thinking and, uh, and working it out now. Thoughts on that, Alan? Yeah, um, don't disagree with the word Mel said, really. Um, I just add on for me, uh, taking a group forward as well. Uh, if you're going back to the environment, create that good environment where the group are almost self-motivating and putting those hurdles in place and egging each other on to be better on a day-to-day -day basis. That's been the most positive environment I've been into where it's actually the athletes that are doing it the coach becomes the facilitator of the environment and the athletes are the people giving people hurdles and pushing each other on day to day. Nice. So, so let's fast forward from um, perhaps when you started working with, with Adam in that talent development environment to, to what it looks like now. 
how would you describe the difference in the environment that you create now now that you've you know you're working in a in a different pool with different facilities which you say is certainly an element of the environment but what's different to now that you're you, you know you're working with the the, the the fastest swimmer on the planet what does that look like um well for me personally as a coach when you're in when i was in my last program i was in charge of a speedboat and i was driving at 100 mile an hour and i was deciding where we're going now i'm working on an oil tanker and so what i mean is that's the difference between being in a club and in a governing body because you have to work with the whole entire oil tanker to kind of move it around so that in itself has a different set of challenges in terms of Adam, um, I mean, I've, I've spoke about it before. When he was a young lad, I call it front, side and back leadership. So when he's younger, I'm stood at the front. We're going this way. We're heading in this direction. When he gets older, a bit more experienced, more of a, a joint approach. You know, what do you think? I'll make the call on that. And now it's basically tell me where you want to go and I will move or move the things around the edge that need moving or create the challenges that you need creating. So it's like front side back leadership. But I think the big thing is, and this is probably me, it is hard every day. I think people think that you you work in a national centre and you just walk up and there's eight athletes and it's all rosy. It is very much not like that. The first 18 months in that role, with Adam just becoming an Olympic champion and being in a different environment and was incredibly hard incredibly hard and so um and and i think i wasn't quite prepared for it i've really had to go out and expand my skill set at the pace that i needed to and so i think that as a coach you can find those things really things can be really hard and really overwhelming in a club the politics that go on can be really overwhelming but you've always got to reach out constantly for a network or a communication or a bit of CPD or a bit of an opportunity to try and better the situation for yourself. Um, because with regards to Adam, you know, it's, I call it, I always refer to climbing mountains. Climbing Snowdonia is really hard the first time you do it. But when you get to the next level, you are climbing Everest. And every single day is different weather or you might need a tent or you have to regress or one man's down or you might have to cut the rope it is really really challenging every single day so so then what what's changed in you in that period though so uh, what did you find tricky or difficult at, at that time that you said you found stuff hard and then kind of how did you go go about recognizing that and then needing to develop yourself in that period so i was really so when I went into the governing body, it was a step up in my coaching, but it was probably a step down in my leadership responsibilities because I was now, my role was influencing and and, and working amidst the, the system. And I and I found it difficult to, to that drop down in leadership responsibilities. I found that a bit of a challenge. But what I worked out was when I was at my last program, I was the upfront leader. And what I do now is I call it invisible leadership. So it's the quiet email. It's the conversation over the phone. It's the how do I influence what I want to get in the long term? And so I really had to develop my invisible leadership skills. And my ego didn't like that because I'm the sort of person that likes praise. I like to come in on the horse and rescue it and solve everything and fix everything. For <laughs> and I like people to know that I've done that. And my my ego, not necessarily, probably is my ego, but the thing that works in for me is people love you because of it. When you're an invisible leader, no one notices. Things just change mm. on the behalf of somebody else looking better. And I, and I once I worked that out, I, I was okay and I was comfortable with that. But I really struggled with that. Hang on a minute. I'm used to making all the decisions myself. I'm used to being in charge. I've, I've proven track record of being successful with that methodology. And um, And ultimately, I'm a commitment culture leader. And what, I, what I'm in is I'm in a star culture and I've had to learn how to facilitate a star culture. And but I, but inherently, I'm a commitment culture leader where I'm everybody can get everybody involved. And and that is actually a more successful. Um, if you read Damien Hughes's book, he talks about those commitment. stuff. So um, but yeah, so that was a real interesting transition for me. And I feel like now only in year three do I feel like I'm thriving i was surviving for the first two years now i'm thriving same with city of derby 
Derby. I was surviving for the first five years, even though I was making progress. And then for the last three years, I was thriving. So one, one more kind of question for, for both of you before the break, I think, is is what's what's changed in the uh, planning side of things now that you're you're working at a level where you're trying to sustain greatness? Um, what's different in terms of the planning side of things? I don't know if Mel's camera's just dropped off, but can you still hear us, Mel? Yeah, I can still hear you. Okay, cool. Your, your camera's just dropped off, but that's cool. Um, what, so what's changed in the in the planning side of things now for you? Um, for me, the plan, the planning side of it doesn't change. It's so when you're working towards a goal and you're striving to get athletes to be the best version of themselves that they can be, the planning side of it it doesn't change too much because you're always striving for better, faster, stronger, higher, taller, you know, all those sort of things. I think what changes is how it's just a different set of influencing skills for me. Um, and to me, sustainable greatness with, with Adam particularly, it's before I had a network of people that helped facilitate success. And then it was, it started again when we moved because we had to get, a new network of people. We had to build trust, build rapport, build relationships. And now what we've got is a working team that, you know, works together. And, you know, I guess that's that that's the other side of it, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Alan, how's, how's planning changed from your experiences over over time working in lots of different environments, whether it's kind of talent development all the way or, or through to high performance? What looks different or slightly different maybe with some of the coaches that you work with now across Olympic pathways? Yeah, I, th I think I think planning is almost the go to um, easy one. If we if we uh, and we did a, a, a curious coaches club on this a few weeks ago, Tom and I and. And I always think, um, especially in the UK, we're very good at, at doing and planning and planning and doing, and we don't do the reviewing that well. So one of my things, I think the way planning is, is, has changed is that people are, are doing more micro reviews. So the really good systems I see aren't prepared to just be a really good system. They're prepared to tweak it and nerdle it and nudge it regularly to make it better. Um, I think in today's society with with access to what we have access to there's not that many secrets so i think the introspective nature of of reviewing to then inform your next plan um is, is the secret to what i've seen you know working into fantastic cricket clubs rugby league clubs etc that yeah i would say the secret to planning is is doing some good honest feedback and and introspective reflection yeah, I, I think that's a, that's a great point. And both of you make really excellent points on this. And what I guess people don't see from, you know, something I guess that we live as an organisation when we, we put on the, the Curious Coaches Club is, is they won't see the planning, I suppose, that we do before to talk about the direction, et cetera. But then once we finish this as a, as a session today, you know, all the UK coaching staff will stay on for another 45 minutes to an hour some days putting it apart, what do we need to do differently, how do we change it, what bits do we keep, how do we move it, all of those kind of different things along the way. Break and in a minute. The things that Mel's saying, I've heard her say before. Brilliant. Thank you, uh, Dave, for that uh, unexpected comment. Um, uh, so we certainly have a lot of uh, uh, reflection time for us as a group to kind of have a hot debrief afterwards which informs our, a lot of our planning moving forwards as well. So, so it's a vital part of the process. So just kind of in summary, really, for the first half, um, you know, there's lots of kind of crucial things that I think that, that came out around these three points. So the environment is crucial, but knowing how to challenge and when to challenge and when to support was, was one of the points that, that Mel made. And I think what she, she said really neatly was, good questions of the people that you're working with to start to gather information that will inform the decision making as part of when to challenge when to support really important uh, and talk a lot about how it's not about you and the emotional intelligence that you need to really start to understand that the athletes that you're working with or or the individuals depending on your own kind of context and how the level of planning 
might not be hugely different across the talent development pathway, but recognize that certainly the more you move towards the high performance end, there's a lot more information available that will inform what you do. So lots of really good stuff there. So we're going to kind of flip it into the second half now and could start to talk about a subject that probably is, is one pretty much close to my heart. And that's really how you go about using sport to develop people. And Alan, let, let's start with you. So, so what does that mean to you? And can you, can you give us any examples of where, where you've used sport as that way to develop people? Yeah, I've I, I had a long think about this. And, and I think sport gives people skills, behaviours, practices, they probably don't realise until it's drawn out. And a, a classic example for me um, is I had an ex-swimmer of my ex, someone I used to swim with, and then I coached, quit swimming after going to these third Olympics and been a world champion, a Commonwealth medalist. And he said, I'm applying for a job. All I do is swim. I don't know anything else other than swimming. And, and through that, we teased out lots and lots and lots of different things within his CV when we actually delved into it. And people who are in swimming will know, well, Jamie Salter's now head of talent at Australian Swimming. And it's not because he was a great swimmer, which he was. It wasn't because he's a great trainer, what he was. It's, it's the behaviours that the sport teaches you as an athlete, teaches you about time regulation. It teaches you about challenging yourself. It teaches you about communication working in teams working as individuals and to be able to, to bring that out i think through sport is going back to that what i said earlier on about developing the person we're almost developing the person through sport and if we can take them through their sporting journey and they can contribute to society as a, as a really active person and become a great person and inspire other people and people often ask me what's my greatest achievement in sport. My greatest achievement is I've got about 10, 12 of my athletes I've used to coach who are now coaching or taking a serious part in sport. And that's my greatest achievement is that paying it forward sort of stuff. Yeah, no, I, 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 I think that's ultimately what we're, we're all about. Sometimes that message can kind of get lost in amongst what we do. Um, part of my previous life was, was working with kids at a Premier League football academy at the time. And when I left, one of the kids as a, uh, an under 11 gave me a, like a, a glass tankard. And on the side is, um, is Heinrich, thanks very much for developing me as a person and as a player. And that's the one thing that, you know, he's in the England youth team squads. He's a scholar at a Premier League club. All of that is kind of secondary to the fact that he talked about that piece as a person. And I think that's hugely important. And Mel, you're obviously trying to do this now with somebody that uh, is, is, a, is with across the eight athletes at all at different levels. But when we talked last week about some of the things that you're doing with, with Adam now, I, I found it really fascinating. And I think it'd be really good to share, if you could, some of the people that are some of the things that you're doing with, with Adam that you're willing to share. Because I think some of it is, it is fascinating that people wouldn't really understand or see. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think... Developing character has always been embedded in what I do. Um, and even from a young age with Adam, it wasn't just the formal interactions that um, allowed him to develop. It was the informal interactions. So what people won't know is when Adam was 18, uh, seven, so 18, when he was kind of going from that transition to um, boy to man, I call it manland. They can go from four years and they can be lost in the system for three years. But as long as they're focused on themselves and their own personal progress, they can survive that. But I took him on a bike ride with me and it was Rebecca Radlington at the time, Ross Davenport and Joe Jackson. And it was kind of that mentoring program. But um, we biked and cycled 500 kilometres together in 42 degree heat across across Zambia. Um, but what Adam was doing was developing his character. You know, he was, he wasn't seeing, he was, you know, every single day was difficult. He was riding on a bike next to people who'd won Olympic medals. He was listening, he was having conversations. So that informal interaction with those people, that high level quality content dropped down onto a pair of very absorbent ears was massively important. Um, 
and other things that I've done. I took my swimmers on a training camp to Zambia um, again a year later because I wanted them to teach young kids how to swim. I wanted them to see what it was to be really struggling. Um, I wanted them to appreciate the journey that they were on. And I really wanted them to be able to cope with whatever came their way anywhere, anytime. So if you go to Zambia, yeah, they say you're going to let you in the pool at eight o'clock. It could be 10 o'clock. They say they're going to serve a, a breakfast, uh, you know, or a food with a that needs a spoon. A fork will be there. You know, they say it's going to be everything's so unpredictable. So I wanted to build this character in Adam that whatever happened in the competitive arena, he could cope with because it's just like, well, it's just how it is. You know, it's not a big deal. There's nothing in sports a really big deal, apart from the pandemic. But um, so I wanted to get him this life experience that was going to uh, give him this ability to cope in the arena. And in Rio, he got off the plane and the, the bags had gone through um, on a bus and all of his bags went missing. His technical kit, his kit, um, his underpants, the whole lot was gone. And so... And he was first swim, as in first day up. And we arrived into Rio five days. One day before he was due to swim, he still didn't have enough kit. Um, it was still walking around in the T-shirt that he travelled in. Now, to me, what I'd built was we'd built this mindset of, if someone says to me, I've got to do it in my trunks, and it's the lame ropes are in the ocean, and there's a shark in there, I'm going, and I don't care. And same thing, it was almost like he'd taken pride in the fact that, you know what, I'm going to handle this better than anybody else. I'm absolutely going to have a rash on my armpit. I'm not going to wear any clean underpants and I'm going to win anyway. And so it was all of those mindset things. And even now, so going into Olympic year, you know, he went on an SAS retreat for four days. He camped in the middle of the night. He walked and trekked in the middle of the night, he jumped out of a plane. Um, and we're constantly evolving this character. And I do feel certainly becoming an Olympic champion when he was such a young boy and coping with it, with what it is to be, be be an Olympic champion are two different things. And that first 18 months after he became Olympic champion, not the first eight months, but the eight months after that, he found it very challenging. And so my job around the edge was to put a support team of people around him that he trusts, that he works with, that help him evolve and grow at the speed that's needed for somebody in, in his position that's still effectively just a young boy that's just moved out of home. And so that constant development of his character is so important and it's such an important part of the journey. Um, and it's so bespoke and individual to him now. Um, yeah, but it's, that, it's, con it's a constant evolution of what does he need to cope? What does he need to feel comfortable in his own skin? And how does he evolve to be the best version of himself he can as an athlete and the best version he can as a person? Yeah, I love that. And I love the fact that, you know, that's it's the consideration that's taken to putting in place some of those little speed bumps along the way so that they they become a kind of a learning point along the way. And some of the work around the rocky road that, uh, different academic authors talk about is, is is really important. I think how as coaches we start to consider doing that is really important because regardless of level or age, etc., um, we definitely have this responsibility as coaches to start to develop these different things in people. And how we go about doing that is really important and, and really needs careful consideration because we def we can't put a a big speed bump in the way and not give them the support or the skills to deal with it afterwards definitely doesn't work like that but certainly thinking about that is a, is a crucial thing for coaches to do and the three things that we've got up on there now mel would be great if you could start to tell us a little bit about now with the work that you're doing with adam how you've kind of gone about helping him understand those different things as a as a businessman as an athlete and as a person and, and, and what that might look like when it kind of plays out in real life for him now yeah, I mean, after the Olympics, we, we went on a real journey. And I do think when you get into those positions like Adam is, when you're, you know, you're on a pedestal, you really have to know who you are. And that, because you come under a lot of criticism, you come under a lot of fire, a lot of people are jealous, a lot of people have, you know, so you really have to know who you are. And Adam, Adam's pretty strong on that. 
But we spent a lot of time exploring Adam's real reason why. Going into the first Olympics, it was very much like we want to, you know, want to swim really well. We want to do really well. And and it was, it was quite simple. And I took on a lot of the responsibility of that and shaped that for him. This four years was about him shaping himself and understanding who he really is. So I call it the three purposes. So we spent a lot of time him exploring what's his moral purpose, what's his athletic purpose, and what's his business purpose. And I think spending time trying to work those things out really helped him understand, right, who am I as an athlete, who am I as a person, and who am I as a businessman? And that was a really good journey that we went on, you know, and a lot of good questioning, a lot of time for him to reflect, a lot of good people for him to talk to. And I think we're starting to see the transition now of boy to man. Because ultimately, when you're in the position of being an Olympic champion, you don't have the luxury of being a proper adolescent because, you know, it's all in the public eye, really. And so he has to, he had to make the transition, not from boy to adolescent to man, but he had to fast forward that adolescent part and go straight from boy to man. So that's really what we've been working on and just him really knowing who he is, what he's about and having a conscious competency in that area. So t- tell us how, how you, you've gone about facilitating those conversations because I think they're, they're, they're brilliant as kind of headlines of kind of things. What's that look like in a, in a kind of way that you've brought that to life to, to help Adam start to think about those? Uh, I think for me, I, I worked with the performance lifestyle guy at the start. Um, so he's since moved to tennis, but we made Adam do a presentation on himself. Um, and athletes love to talk about themselves. This was supposed to be a 40-minute <laughs> chat for an hour and a half. So it was great. So also just um, lots of little conversations, lots of little opportunities and windows for him to talk and to help guide him. And to me, it's who you put around him to help influence him positively and help him, you know, have that offload to reload. He's just a boy. Do you know what I mean? He, he's going to make mistakes. but um, And so just allowing him to have that space and room to go through that change and just getting the team around him to be on his team and be on his side and just getting that support, really. Um, but, yeah, the, the, the key things were making him present on himself, getting support from the staff to the new team, as in what do you think he's good at, um, so that he had belief partners um and lots of i guess little intricate things like that lots and lots of little conversations i would say has been the big thing brilliant alan thoughts on um thoughts on that as a kind of a concept and a way of developing people that we work with yeah, I, I i think it's absolutely fantastic i know again i won't use swimming but in some of the different sports i've seen um we were talking about you know you you your athletic career is very short. Your your working career is, is very long. And I, I've always felt that part of the job of a coach, especially of, an, of a high-performance athlete, is to prepare them to go out into the rest of the world and contribute to that. And if that's in business, then that's business. And if that's in however coaching, then that's coaching. I, I feel... There's a lot more programs now that are looking at that. So the Academy accreditation systems, the EPPP or, or whatever it looks like within those sports, those sorts of areas are being picked up on nowadays. So it's starting to do. I think sometimes it's a little bit lip service, but I think the great quality coaches like Mel's just demonstrated that are the people who, who put that wraparound care in place. So when the athlete goes off the end of the treadmill, and into real life and on Monday morning at eight o'clock doesn't have to go training. Well, what do I do? That those are that's already in place for them. So we don't end up with with um, you know issues with psychology or if issues with wellness five, 10, 15 years later down the line when people have lost that identity as an athlete because they they move straight into another identity of business person or work person or coach or mentor or whatever it is so yeah those building blocks for post-athletic career 
for me is just absolutely fantastic. And when done well, it's just really, really powerful. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and the whole aim of these conversations really for everybody is, you know, in 50 minutes, 55 minutes of conversation here, we're never going to get totally deep in, in anything. But the aim is of being a curious coach is to kind of spark your interest to to go off and start to understand, all right, now these things are important and these are the things that two coaches with amazing expertise in, in Mel and Alan that we've got here, these are the kind of things that they're doing. And regardless of the level, whether you're working at grassroots participation, it's how we can kind of prompt some thinking in you to go, ah, okay, well, these are really important. How do I go off and develop these, have a play around with these, make some mistakes and, and have a go at this kind of stuff? And what we always like to do on these sessions is try and finish with a few kind of similar questions. So, um, Mel, what, what's um, what's the best coaching mistake you've made? Um, the best coaching mistake I've made is, I think, is that naivety. Okay, go on. Uh, well, when I went into the city of Darb, if I was looking at it now, I mean, the landscape's different. When I went into that the city of Derby, I didn't see any obstacles. I didn't see any hurdles. I didn't see any, you know, I was just like, we can, we can. That's all I could say. I saw belief. We can. It is possible. So that almost like that naivety was actually a real positive thing because I just didn't see any barriers. Um, I, I, maybe it's not a coaching, the biggest coaching mistake that I've made is I never see them as mistakes because I just think they're part of what we do. We're in a trial and error business when you're trying to make progress. I'm like, sometimes I'm going to get my decision right. And sometimes I'm going to get my decision wrong. But as long as I'm making progress quickly from both outcomes, it is just part of the journey that I'm on. So I guess I'm not really answering your question. <laughs> the only thing I, was, I can tell a very, very short, funny story about conflict with a parent for those people who deal with parents on a regular basis that might That'll be everyone I can imagine this would be great so I remember going on the ECAP UK sport elite coaching course and um there was basically I'd done this this day on managing conflict so it was basically I'd spent the whole day if someone kind of has a challenge with you ask them a question oh tell me more about that why are you frustrated about that parent A? Eh? can I help you anyway there was this very naughty kid in one of my swimming sessions who was late every single time, not because his parents were late or rushing from work, but because he was messing about in the changing rooms. And I'd given him time after time after time. And basically I just said, his name was Joe. I said, Joe, you need to leave the building. I said, you need to leave the session. I said, I can't be doing with this behavior anymore. It's not acceptable. Anyway, so he left the session and his dad, who's a big guy, come storming down my poolside in front of everybody else. The committee members are there because it's a committee evening. The parents are there. All the swimmers are there, all that sort of stuff. And in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, right, remember what you've learned down this course now. Ask a question. Try and diffuse this problem. Right, Mr. Hurst, can you tell me um, Can you tell me what the problem is here? And he started shouting at me in front of everybody else. And I was like thinking, Mel, think about what you can say. Think about it. Ask the question. What do you think is the right thing that I should have done here? Then he started shouting even louder. And they kept with this script of ask questions, ask questions, diffuse a problem. And then he really started shouting at me. And basically, he was bigger than me. He was pretty tall. And then the context coach came into me. I'd spent all day learning this skill, which is a very, very important skill at certain times. And then I just decided, I'm going to shout back. And so basically, I was just like, I held my ground, I shouted back at him, and he backed off. Because ultimately what he was trying to do was he was trying to bully me in front of everybody else and make me feel really small. And I was like, you know what? Sometimes you just need to, at that time, make the right decision for that moment. And and that's what I learned in that moment was you can have all the training in the world, but sometimes you have to make an action in that moment that you believe in. Absolutely. And, and one of the things that we do as a... As a business, is we use a tool called Spotlight, which is at, which is that to a T. It's knowing when to move to change because you need to do something different because you're not having influence. Brilliant, love that, Alan. Best coaching mistake you've made? 
Yeah, I had, um, and it was my very first job about year two. I had a couple of shoulder injuries for whatever reason, nothing to do with swimming, just two of my swimmers. So we decided, or I decided, that rather than having a shoulder injury and not training, that we do some different training. So I decided, well, we could work on some agility, we could work on some strength, we could work on as a whole group instead. So we went and got a load of skateboards. All the athletes went on skateboards to help improve their agility. We did a load of other stuff. We bought a load of fins. So we had about five sessions a week, which were just kick sessions for two hours. We're doing lots of underwater challenges, lots of timing things. And, and over six months, this developed and developed and developed to the point where the kids were bringing in their own games to do for the kicking night or the kicking morning or whatever it was. And the two people who were injured actually came back and swam for the first time. The first meet, meet they did, which was about two weeks after they had a shoulder injury, hadn't pulled for six months, but just kicked, had been on skateboards, had been doing different stuff. They were doing more dancey stuff. They were doing a little bit of break, just really random stuff. Absolutely smashed their PBs out. Of the, I mean, just obliterated them all. Yet they'd never done a, a stroke in the water for six months. So it kind of changed my philosophy on you don't have to swim all the time to be a great swimmer. What you need to be is an athlete and enjoy the environment, be part of a team. Rather than people with injuries trying to get excluded, we actually made them the centre of the program. Everybody got their injury, relatively speaking, and we all did stuff to, to benefit them and benefit the squad. So it kind of changed my outlook on how we deal with stuff and, and bringing new things into play. Nice. Um, right, we've got three minutes left, so this is a quick-fire answer from both of you. Um, what item for less than £30 do you use the most and has affected your daily life or coaching the most? Mel? Uh, my little black book of lists. I like to write a good list, and so I like a page for each category. Good. Alan? I used to have a deck of cards. And on each deck of card was either a forfeit or a set and some positive, some negative. So they could be really brutal sets or really nice. Everyone get out was one of them. Um, but it was down to random luck. And if it was your birthday, you got the option of choosing. So you didn't have to choose. But if you did, you could get a really big set, challenging set, or you could get out. So it was a deck of cards. And if they were bored or a bit restless, we get the deck out and it kind of made things fun. Nice. And what couple of coaches or coaching books would you tell others to read if they wanted to really develop their impact on coaching? So Mel's mentioned Damien Hughes already. Uh, any others, Mel, coaches that have, uh, you know, interesting ones that people should go and look at? Uh, I do think the Ferguson books are good. So they're really good. And then I'm reading uh, Phil Jackson at the minute, 11 Rings, which is quite a good book. If you're a swimming coach, there's a really good book called Games, Gimmicks and Challenges. It's got some great ideas about session contents. Nice. Alan? From your perspective, someone that challenged me and, and made stuff life really, Dave Salo. Um, if you go get the book called Swim Salo, it's just a fabulous book for me for, for all those swimmers out there. I'm not a great reader, as, as Nick will know, on these things that I've spent time with and talked with and discussed stuff with is a guy called Eddie Reese at University of Texas and just unbelievable but just thinks about stuff so differently and was just I've just brilliant to have five or six years when I when I talked to him quite a lot brilliant um thank you very much uh so this is part of a series of, of different things throughout the week and all of these linked to the, our community of practice that take place later on in the week and where you found the link to this as a webinar you can find the link to the communities of practice there and we continue this conversation on the connected coaches forum so what we've got on the next slide uh hopefully is a couple of other articles that this links to if you go onto the uk coaching website there's other pieces so sarah kelleher one of the england hockey coaches talks about the key things for her in a coaching environment and Professor Joan Duda. So Joan Duda does a lot of work around empowering athletes and some incredible stuff. 
So again, if you go onto the website, there's a lot more information that you can find and explore to your heart's content around coaching uh, or creating a, a positive coaching environment and what that looks like. But what we've had today from Mel and Alan is some of the real detail that underpins it. You know, Mel talking earlier on about the how and the why and what that looked like and how you start to, to set the environment that, you know, you've got competition, but there's visible success and it's all built around fun and enjoyment as a, as a backdrop to what that looked like. And one of the other things I think that Mel kind of highlighted was don't miss those kind of informal moments for coaching. They're often the most important ones. And one of the things that Mel said to me last week when we were talking about this is it's lonely when you're going against tradition. So just because we've always done it that way is not necessarily the reason to continue to do what we've always done. And it can be hard if you are looking to create change. So recognize that that is part of the challenge of when you're going against tradition and trying to do something different. Join us at ukcoaching.org. Whatever you're doing to help people be active and improve, we can help you deliver great coaching experiences at a time to suit you.